Hi, this is Mike Adams. Thanks for listening to Adams on Agriculture. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Informing America's farmers and ranchers, it's Adams on Agriculture. Produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Here's your host, Mike Adams. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Adams on Agriculture. Thanks for joining us and letting us be part of your day. We have plenty to talk about on our show today. Danielle Beck with the National Cattlemen's Beef Association will be joining us. When I get the beef industry's reaction to all the attention on these plant-based products that are out there and um, seemingly more all the time. How does the beef industry respond? We'll talk about that. Nick Giordano with the National Pork Producers Council will join us. We're going to talk trade issues, the importance of getting a deal done with Japan, of course, getting USMCA passed and the ongoing damage to the pork industry and opportunities lost with the trade war with China. We'll talk about that with Nick Giordano. And Maggie Elowani with the National Rural Health Association will join us. We'll get an update on the situation uh, with rural health care, the challenges, the issues, the shortages, and what's being done to try to address them. That's coming up on today's program. Right now, let's kick it off with the news from DTN. Here's Todd Neely. Hi, Todd. How are you? Todd, are you there? Well, we will try to uh, reestablish with Todd and uh, kind of kick around the news with him a little bit. Todd, are you there now? I am. Thanks for having me. There you are. <laughs> Thought we'd lost you for a minute. Good to have you with us. Hey, let's talk about, um, you know, a lot. we're starting to see the results. The Pro Farmer Crop Tour is going on. I know, DTN, you've done some, uh, uh, like, satellite imagery of, of, of crop conditions. Uh, I guess we're finding out what we already knew and that uh, it's uh, a lot of variability across uh, the Midwest. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and uh, with our digital tour last week, we did learn that, uh, you know, we saw some, some definite uh, disparities between, you know, the recent USDA numbers that were put out uh, and what we were seeing on the digital crop tour. And so, uh, yeah, when you hear more about what's going on in the field and the and you consider everything that USDA, you know, the change in course that they had. Um, and it's it's really going to be interesting to see how it all plays out. But I think the only thing we know at this point is that uh, we're probably going to have a crop that's not as good as last year. And we already know we have um, a large number, about 19 million uh, prevented planted acres. And so, um, yeah, I, I don't know what to make of all of it, but when you put it together, we're just – we're going to see the the effects of uh, you know the weather situation that we had and and all those things. So it'll it'll be interesting to see in the end what it all uh, what it all shakes out to be. Yeah, what we're seeing and what we're hearing about is the potential that's out there. As you said, less than last year, we we knew that, but we don't know yet how much of that potential will be realized. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and uh, you know, as we've talked about on here on your show. Uh, you know, the technology that, that the farmers have available in hybrids and so on, um, you know, we had, you know we talked about this 10, 15 years ago when the renewable fuel standard uh, came into law. Uh, you know, what, what's the future of corn acres, produ- you know, how many, how many bushels per acre produced? And, you know, all those talks of, and all those years of, of about 300 bushel corn at some point in the future, um, you know, we're probably obviously not at that point, but um, I think the way technologies are going to play out going forward uh, is, is going to play into this, too. You know, maybe years past, um, all these weather events and all these tough situations 
uh, would have led to you know quite a quite a bit of a drop in in quality and and quantity and all that. Uh, but you know, I think I think the technology it, is starting to prove itself. You know, we're starting to see. Yeah, the numbers are lower, but uh, I still think we're going to have a you know a fairly decent crop overall. Uh, I think that's a good point. I mean, we're we're focused obviously on how much uh, of a reduction we have this year, but you're right. Um, when it's all said and done, whatever that final figure is, it'll be yeah. quite a, a quite an accomplishment. It'll be amazing that we were able to hit that level with all the challenges of this growing season. You mentioned the RFS, and uh, that story continues to uh, uh, to um, you know cause ripples across not only the biofuels industry but rural America. The impact of these waivers on the RFS, and I think what will be interesting to see how it plays out through the course of this presidential campaign the impact on the president's reelection bid uh when after repeatedly publicly stating his support for the biofuels industry then evidently stepping in and uh uh, calling an end to the review of the epa's uh policies on granting these waivers and really opening the door for these 31 more to be granted yeah, absolutely. You know, I I think uh, I think that's the burning question at this point. Is has uh, the president done a 180 on the renewable fuel standard? Um, you know, since that announcement, we we've heard nothing out of the Trump administration, even to suggest that uh, you know what they did was anything out of the course of the ordinary. I mean, they put out a news release on that Friday, uh, and just kind of moved on from it. And so it, it really did leave a lot of open-ended questions about. Uh, whether this administration has, in fact, changed its policy. You know, there were um, another two uh, exemptions that are pending. We just learned that uh, on the 15th of August, the EPA had put two more exemptions that they're considering for for 2018. Um, And so it never really seems to end. And uh, at this point, I think, you know, as we look out toward that election, uh, it'll be interesting to see whether this does have an effect. You're right. I mean, I think on the margins, it probably will. You know, they're uh, but yet, on the other hand, I, I think, uh, you know, there's a sentiment in rural America that, you know, if we can get a deal on China that, that's good for, for ag in some way, in many ways, um, you know, maybe it would in some ways uh, alleviate a lot of the concerns about the RFS, although uh, the policy itself is still uh, still kind of in a kind of a flux. And so, um, yeah, I, I think, uh, you know, as we go into that the 2020 election, uh, this is another one of those uh, issues in rural America that people are going to have on their minds. It's also an issue that's, like many others, will have to be resolved in court, it looks like, and we know that takes time. Yeah, absolutely. You know, we've got a number of lawsuits that were ongoing uh, dating back a couple of years, and so I think you're right. I, I think what we learned in the past couple of weeks is that this will be up to a court, Um you know, unless the president somewhere along the way changes his mind, it's uh, it's ultimately going to come down to who can make the legal arguments. And, and right now there, there are a number of cases out there that, that have the potential to do that. You know, interesting, real quick here, Todd, uh, we'll see if that's how much of a campaign issue that is. Some on the Democratic side that are saying they're supportive of ethanol and the RFS, uh, but if they support the, the Green New Deal, in essence, you eliminate the need for uh, ethanol and biofuels if you're going to get rid of uh, cars and trucks and, you know, motors uh, that we're used to. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you're right. This is kind of an opening for the for the other side on this. Uh, you know, when the president 
seemingly does do a 180 on the RFS, uh, it does it does kind of open the door uh, for some some of the Democratic candidates. We haven't heard a lot from that side where they stand. You know, we've heard general support uh, for the RFS. I mean, we've heard a couple of a couple of people talk about uh, you know how the waivers program is wrong and right. everything. But yeah, who knows? Yeah, we'll have to see because uh, that those lines can get blurred pretty quick if you're going to support. Uh, biofuels or you're going to support the green new deal all the way down the line can you do both we'll we'll see how that plays out too thanks todd good to talk with you all right thank you mike todd neely with dtn stay with us here on aoa hi this is mike adams you're listening to aoa adams on agriculture don't go away more adams on agriculture coming right up okay I only have 15 seconds to tell you about Tavium Plus Vapor Grip Technology, the new Dicamba Premix herbicide from Syngenta. It controls tough weeds and soybeans like Palmer Amaranth, water hemp, and grass weeds. Actually, we're going to go longer because Tavium lasts longer. So you get all the power of Dicamba plus up to three weeks longer residual control than Dicamba alone. Now time's officially up for tough weeds. Talk to your local Syngenta retailer to learn more. Always read and follow label instructions. Tavium Plus Vapor Grip Technology is a restricted-use pesticide. Recently on Adams on Agriculture. So we just talked with the CEO of the National Biodiesel Board, Donnell Rehagen, an industry, this biodiesel industry that's reeling from these RFS waivers that are being granted. And, of course, uh, as plants shut down, uh, that's, that's loss of market for soybean growers. We know about the situation with China, huge market loss there. So what about the efforts to develop new markets for our soybeans? Let's talk about that now with the CEO of the U.S. Soybean Export Council, Jim Sutter. Jim, good to talk with you again. Uh, I know you're working hard on this, trying to find uh, new markets for our soybeans. Tell us about uh, those efforts. We certainly are. You know, our focus, we really sort of, if you think about it, we have a bit of a three-pronged focus, trying to build market share in existing markets like we currently have, trying to grow brand new markets, and then trying to help, hopefully, over time, regain our market to get our foothold back in China. For the information important to rural America, join us on Adams on Agriculture. Bad theater seats, cheap Halloween masks, my apartment, all things with obstructed views. Add to these large trucks and buses. 18-wheelers and large buses have big blind spots, and like my apartment, they don't always have the best view. Bus and truck drivers deal with blind spots around the entire vehicle. Always take care not to ride alongside or too close behind them. Our roads, our safety. Learn more at sharetheroadsafely.gov. Sometimes life is wonderful, and sometimes it's not. Cherish the good, but always be prepared for life's challenges. At Private Healthcare, we provide the peace of mind you deserve. You'll get the coverage you want and health care you need. If your employer doesn't supply health care coverage and you don't qualify for Medicare or Medicaid, you need to give us a call right now. Private health care is private health insurance for ages 65 and under with medical, dental, vision, and even prescription coverage. When life comes at you unexpectedly, you need to be ready. And health insurance is your financial safety net. If you're looking for health coverage at the best price and your annual household income is 35000 or more, give us a call at 800-664-2612. That's 800-664-2612. 800-664-2612. 
You're listening to AOA Adams on Agriculture. Hi, this is Mike Adams. The latest farm and ranch news from around the world. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now, back to Mike Adams. Well, we are hearing and seeing a lot about these plant-based products that are in uh, the marketplace now, and I want to get the, the beef industry's reaction to this. Danielle Beck, Director of Government, Government Affairs for the National Cattlemen's Beef Association, joins us. Danielle, thank you for being with us. Um, are you surprised by uh, what seems to be uh, growing not only attention but popularity in some places for these products? Hey, Mike. Uh, you know, we're not that surprised because really we have some pretty good data on hand that shows that in spite of the, you know, pretty constant media attention and, you know, somewhat of an increase in coverage over the last couple of months, uh, consumers still love beef. Beef is the number one protein. Uh, you know, there's all this attention in the media, but at the end of the day, these plant-based alternatives are less than 1% of the market share. Uh, consumers might be intrigued, but they haven't really changed any of their purchasing habits. And so, you know, it's a little bit more competition in the marketplace, but we know our real competition is probably chicken. So my concern has been on this, If, and I have not tried uh, the product, but those that have, many of them have said it tastes pretty close. They can't hardly tell the difference between it and, and beef, or, you know, they can't tell if they're buying one of these impossible burgers. It, it doesn't taste much different than a regular burger. So if, you ha- if they can get close on taste, and if they can somehow convince people uh, to feel good about themselves for purchasing the product because somehow they're saving the planet, uh, are you concerned that that is enough to uh, really boost their sales more than uh, what you're seeing so far? You know, I think you can put enough cheese and condiments on cardboard and get a pretty decent taste. Uh, I've had one of these products, provided it was uh, one of the earlier generations, and they've since reformulated. Uh, And I I wasn't that impressed. I think it depends on how you prepare it. But uh, we're pretty confident in all the facts surrounding beef products. That's not to say we're not taking this seriously, uh, because the way that they're being marketed is incredibly problematic. They're not relying on the facts, and they're using some pretty disparaging uh, techniques and saying not pretty negative things about you know conventionally produced beef uh, as a way of marketing their own products. And you know we're fu- we're confident that beef can stand on its own. It's safe. It's affordable. It's nutritious. Our producers work hard each and every day. Uh, not just to produce this product on the plates, but also to care for their land, to care for their herds. Uh, We've got a great environmental footprint. We're continuing to make strides. And so I I think as long as we continue to sell the positive messages, uh, consumers can continue feeling good about eating beef. Uh, And I I think this is ultimately, at the end of the day, going to be a fad. We're talking with Danielle Beck with the National Cattlemen's Beef Association. That that will be interesting. Uh, I, I wonder about that, too. It, it, right now it's the new shiny toy out there, so it's getting a lot of attention. We'll see if it, it has, uh, you know, legs, if it, if it can sustain this uh, popularity or not. I have said that uh, with the attention and, you know, all the uh, publicity around these products, also will come scrutiny of them. If, if there's any fairness at all in looking at these things. Um, so two issues will come up, price and also, as you mentioned, environmental footprint. You, as you pointed out, the beef industry, uh, you're, you're glad to be out there talking about your envir- environmental footprint. 
What about theirs? What do we know about uh, what it takes to uh, uh, produce these products? Uh, you know, they've put together some uh, industry-funded life cycle assessments. Uh, I'm not sure necessarily that that's probably an accurate snapshot of their full uh, environmental footprint, though. Uh, but you're absolutely right, Mike. With increased attention in the media, there's also going to be some increased scrutiny, and we're already starting to see that. You know, there's one ingredient in beef, and that's beef. Uh, the multitude of ingredients and processing agents and preservatives that go in to these products, I mean, they're highly processed. Uh, and consumers these days are really trending towards products that are, you know, simpler, less ingredients, limited ingredients, minimally processed, natural. Uh, and I think when you compare the ingredient lists alone as well as the Nutrition Facts panel, the choice is clear. Are these highly processed products that are coming out? They are. Uh, you know, I think the Beyond Burger has about 18 different ingredients. Impossible has 22. Uh, you know, none of it's quite natural. You probably, uh, some folks out there have probably seen a picture comparing the ingredients in these two products to vegan dog food, and there are some pretty uh, common ingredients there across food products, um, one of which you might want to feed your children, the other one maybe not so much. Uh, but, you know, they're, they're not natural. Um, there's a lot of technology, let's just say, utilized in the manufacturing of these products. You can't really get closer to a factory farm production environment than, uh, you know, something like this. Yeah, I think that's... That's what kind of stands out to me. Some of the things that some consumers and some critics have have uh, complained about with uh, livestock production and, and, in this case, the beef industry, uh, if you look at what's being done here, uh, you would say, why would anybody be supportive of that? Because it seems more of what they've been so critical of of the beef industry. Absolutely. Uh, but, you know, we know that consumers, when they're in the grocery store, their purchasing decisions are driven by, you know, a few big things. Uh, one is price. The next is taste. Uh, and then I think the third is probably this broad category of is it something that they can feel good about eating. Uh, you know, we win on price, we win on taste, and we certainly win in the third category because consumers can feel good about eating beef. Uh, you know, these products are highly processed. If you look at the nutrition uh, makeup of them, you know, we went on sodium. Uh, our products are much lower in sodium. We went on fat. We're higher in protein. Uh, beef really does check every single box. And so, uh, you know, hopefully this media attention will die down. But in the meantime, NCBA is working on ensuring that uh, these products and the manufacturers of them are really forced to comply with the law because right now uh, they're labeled and marketed in a way that uh, – really misrepresents what the true product is. And so we're looking at uh, ways we can work with FDA to ensure that there's compliance across uh, the board with the law as it stands. Well, as you say, the beef industry, and you just spelled it out very well, you have, you have this great story to tell. Unfortunately, as we often see, the general media doesn't always bother to tell that story or at least give you the chance to tell your story and it can be rather one-sided sometimes uh, in in the in the media coverage of these products we're starting to see that coverage turn though and you know that's why we always appreciate the opportunity to have conversations like this mm -hmm. well i i think it's important 
because I think it is an opportunity for the beef industry. I mean, this gives you a chance to really tell people and uh, uh, and show people what maybe they've taken for granted about beef production or did not understand about beef production and and put your product up against them. As you said, you're not afraid to do that and let people see the truth here. Absolutely. And, you know, NCBA, the policy arm of NCBA, we're doing that. We're pounding the pavement, uh, you know, across Capitol Hill, working with our stakeholders in the administration to do just that. Uh, NCBA, through the beef checkoff, has some really great promotion uh, and marketing campaigns right now telling uh, the benefits of beef, the great story beef has to tell. And we're continuing to encourage uh, all beef producers out there, regardless of whether or not they're NCBA members, to continue sharing their story and working hard to break through to some of those audiences that maybe are, you know, insulated bubbles, specifically urban millennials, if you will. I was in a restaurant not too long ago with my family, and and one of these products was on the menu, uh, one of their burgers, and it almost you could almost if you weren't careful if you weren't looking too closely you could almost order it without even realizing it. So when I said to the waitress, I said, "I want a real burger." I, I made sure that the, I, I made that very clear to her. <laughs> yeah, there's nothing like the real thing. So, but are you concerned? As you said, it's a small percentage of the marketplace right now, but we know margins are always thin. Um, so if you lose even a small share of the market, uh, that could make a difference, though. You know, and market share can grow over time. Um, but if you look at global food demand by 2050, the amount of people that we're going to have to feed, it's going to take all types of protein products. You know, we're our producers are up for the challenge of meeting that demand. Uh, we're happy to hold hands, I think, with any other protein product out there in order to do so. Uh, what, what our guys take the biggest issue with are uh, folks like the CEO of Impossible Foods, who's very transparent about the fact that he'd like to see an end to animal agriculture by 2035, which, you know, I think is a sort of myopic and short-sighted viewpoint, if you ask me. Uh, it, yeah. We're really going to need a tremendous amount of protein to, to meet this demand uh, in the next couple decades. But, um, yeah, you know, I think the, the media attention is a passing fad. Um, well, we'll wait and see, but in the meantime, you know, we're taking it seriously because I think once these products are brought into compliance with the labeling laws, uh, consumers will really have a better idea of what it is they're buying. Very good. Danielle, thank you for being with us. Thanks, Mike. Danielle Beck with the National Cattlemen's Beef Association. Up next, we talk trade. Stay with us on AOA. Hi, this is Mike Adams. You're listening to AOA, Adams on Agriculture. Don't go away. More Adams on Agriculture coming right up. You may not realize how important three letters can be. For a patient who needs type A, B, or O blood, these letters can mean life. But there simply aren't enough people giving blood. Every two seconds, someone in the U.S. needs it, but only about 3% of the population donates. Without more donors, hospitals may not have the blood needed to save lives. That's why the American Red Cross needs people to help restore the A's, B's, and O's that are depleting each day. When you make your appointment to donate blood at redcrossblood.org forward slash missing types, you can help give strength to kids, parents, and grandparents who face life and death challenges. From cancer patients to accident survivors, waiting for critical surgeries, your generosity can give someone more life. 
Don't wait until the letters A, B, and O are missing from hospital shelves. You are the missing type patients need. Visit redcrossblood.org forward slash missing types or call 1-800-RED-CROSS to make your donation appointment today. Time now for a market check here on Adams on Agriculture. I'm Rusty Halverson. Kirsten Rawl have the market numbers in just a bit. I'm broadcasting from Dakota Fest in Mitchell, South Dakota, celebrating its 24th year for the show. A couple of keynote speakers this year will define the trends in the agricultural sector. Dave Fogel of Advanced Trading and also Jerry Golke of the Golke Group. Livestock producers have a lot of sessions here. Seminars in the Swine Education Building will focus heavily on biosecurity this year with an update on African swine fever and tips for protecting animal feed from foreign disease. Of course, next week we'll be broadcasting from the Farm Progress Show. Sabrina Hill, Mike and I will all be on the grounds. In the grain and oil seed sector, in the overnight trade, we had a positive tone. Corn and soybean crop ratings slipping in yesterday afternoon's report from USDA. With our Tuesday numbers, here's Kirsten Rawl. On the Board of Trade, September corn down a penny at 364. Nearby soybeans up four and a fraction of a cent at 858 and a fraction of a cent. September Minneapolis spring wheat down a penny and a quarter of a cent at 504 and a quarter of a cent. Kansas City wheat September down three and a fraction of a cent at 388. Chicago wheat September down three and three quarters of a cent at 461 and three quarters of a cent. For livestock at the Merck in live cattle futures, August up 95 cents at 101.15. August feeders up 57 cents at 136.25. October lean hogs up 80 cents at 64.82. In the outside markets, the Dow is 62 points lower. The Nasdaq Composite down 34. Crude oil in New York is down 66 cents at 55.55. The S&P is down 10 points. You're listening to Adams on Agriculture. I'm Kirsten Rall for the American Ag Network. Have you written a book and want to get it published? Then call Page Publishing at 800-955-4538 immediately. That's 800-955-4538. Page Publishing is looking for authors of all types of books. And unlike most publishers, Page Publishing will take the time to review each and every book submitted to them and give you their feedback. If they like what they read, they'll get your book into bookstores and for sale online at Amazon, the Apple iTunes Store, Barnes & Noble, and other outlets. They handle everything, editing, cover design, copyright protection, printing, publicity, and distribution. So if you've written a novel, children's book, cookbook, inspirational work, poetry, or a biography and want to get it published, then you need to call Page Publishing and do it immediately. Call 800-955-4538 now for your free author submission kit. Again, for your free author submission kit, call 800-955-4538. That's 800-955-4538. Your road to fame and fortune could very well start with this simple phone call. Call Page Publishing at 800-955-4538 for your free author submission kit. Hi, this is Mike Adams. Thanks for listening to Adams on Agriculture. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now back to Mike Adams. We're glad to welcome back Nick Giordano, Vice President and Counsel, Global Government Affairs for the National Pork Producers Council. Nick, thank you for joining us. Uh, so much to talk about on the trade front. I want to start right off with Japan. It seems like we're on track to get a deal done. Let's talk about the importance of that, especially for the U.S. pork industry. Critically important, Mike. Japan 
Japan has been the top value export market for the U.S. pork industry for years. It's a market our producers have grown dependent on. We're being prejudiced by the CPTPP countries. So Canada, Mexico, Chile, for example, are pork competitors that are part of the CPTPP, as well as the European Union. Uh, the EU trade deal, which Japan phased in on February 1st of this year, and there have been two CPTPP phases in the initial on January 1, and then the deal switched to a Japanese uh, fiscal year basis. So on April 1, there was another cut. We're losing sales. It's a tough situation, but we're very pleased that the Trump administration has taken the heart to need to get us on a level playing field ASAP with our competitors. Do we have any idea of what might be in this deal that we keep hearing about that they're working on and getting close to? Does it get us close or to what we would have had under the TPP? Um, I can't comment on the other sectors, but as far as the pork sector goes, um, we would expect as good or better than what we got on the TPP, which was pretty darn good. Pork producers worked really hard to get a good outcome. Um, that that deal never um, was made effective as the U.S. pulled out. We've made it clear we're not going to make perfect the enemy of good here. Um, and, and really, we had a great deal on the TPP. So... Um, I, our expectation is that we get put on a level playing field with our competitors, so we come in at the same phase and level that they're at, so we're not prejudiced at all. And then our natural advantages kick in with our affordability, our safety, our quality, and um, we need to get back to where we were, and that is on a level playing field with our competitors, ASAP. Some estimates have been that we'll have a deal done this fall. What are you hearing? Well, we sure hope so, and that's what we've been pushing for. And we want a deal this fall, and we want the diet. We're hopeful that the Japanese diet will act this fall and that we'll have a deal that's implemented next year. Um, the way that we've uh, felt that this needs to go forward is, an early harvest on ads, and there's room for a deal here where the U.S. Congress does not have to have a vote, because let's face it, having a vote before the election on a Japan deal would be very difficult once you go through the TPA notice requirements, and then you have just the politics of the election and so on. We need to get on a level playing field now. So we're delighted that both the U.S. and Japan seem to be headed towards an early harvest deal on agriculture. We need that to happen. We need to get on the level playing field with our competitors in Japan, ASAP. We're talking with Nick Giordano with the National Pork Producers Council. Well, we do need congressional approval on USMCA. We have heard some positive comments from Speaker Pelosi that even though they still have some concerns, some issues that need to be addressed, that she does want it to pass. Uh, are you optimistic at this point, and uh, do you think it'll come up for a vote this year, which is very important, obviously, in the timing? 
Yes, I am optimistic. I, I, I do think that the votes will ultimately be there. Um, no question on the Senate side, but I think on the House side, um, Speaker Pelosi simply wants to bring a deal to her caucus where she can get, you know, not just 25 or 30 or 35 members, but I think she's looking, you know, upward of 50 or more. And I think, you know, as long as there's not some onerous provision in there and, you know, there's nothing that we're, uh, you know, nothing at this point that gives us pause, that's a good thing then. So we and I and I think other pro-trade groups as well, other ad groups, has been, you know, on the one hand, we wanted this to pass yesterday, but we understand that it's good for trade if we have a vote, and, you, you know, you're not going to get a majority of the Democratic caucus, but if we can get a significant number of Democrats to vote for USMCA, that's a positive thing. And, and I think, you know, more important than what I think or the other ag groups or the pro-trade private sector thinks, I think that the Trump administration is like-minded I think they've been um, pretty patient, and but I do think that there will be a vote, uh, knock on wood, this uh, before the end of the year. Yeah, their approach with uh, Ambassador Lighthizer talking with, working with uh, Democratic leaders in the House, that seems to be a good approach and seems to be working and moving this forward. Yeah, it does, and our hope is that after this USMCA deal, we have more FTAs that that come, um, and and um, so we the more members that vote for a trade deal, that's that's a positive thing for us. So we're eager to have the USMCA vote, and of course we want, you know, the, the most important thing is we get the vote that passes. But the more members of Congress that vote for it the more that bodes well for trade generally and specifically for other FTAs that will come hopefully soon before the U.S. Congress. Well, of course, uh, let's wrap it up with the big one, and that's China. Do you see any light at the end of this tunnel? You know, look, if, if the U.S. And, and China are unpredictable, um, there have been so many twists and turns in this thing. So naturally, we're really hopeful that we have a resolution really quickly because um, we've got an, uh, the, the, an unprecedented sales opportunity in China now with pork because of African swine fever. I mean, it always was, you know, the, the, the most important potential market looking out in time for pork. But the uh, biggest pork-producing, pork-consuming market in the world, we always knew, and the pork industry globally always knew it had more potential um, for sales than any other market. But that potential now is being brought forward in a big way because of African swine fever. And it's a tough thing for our industry, for our producers. We're kind of stuck on the sidelines now with a 50% punitive tear-up. Um, that's on top of their normal 12% tariff. So U.S. pork is facing a 62% tariff on average in China, whereas their competitors are facing a 12% tariff. So really the question for us is, are we going to get the main course, which under you know normal, more, more normal, 
economic circumstances, we would. The United States would be the single largest beneficiary. So are we going to get some sort of resolution that puts us in that position where we reap the greatest benefit, or are we talking about a side dish or even potentially worse yet the crumbs off the table? So it's a really big deal for us. Um, i got to say our producers are pretty wound up about it. They, you know, on the one hand, they understand that um, this is pretty serious business, realigning um, the U.S.-China relationship. I think they're to be commended for being so patient. On the other hand, this is a big pocketbook issue. So, you know, people are getting antsy, and we, we understand that, and a resolution can't come fast enough. To, to, to get right to the point to your question, I don't know, Mike. I don't know, but I sure hope so. Well, obviously, there's this huge demand for pork there in China. Uh, if others are going to fill that, does that open up opportunities for us somewhere else, or uh, can other countries ramp up the production to meet that demand in China? Well, both. Um, it, there, there, is a, there is an opportunity, and we have been so-called backfilling in third-country markets. So make no mistake, the ASF in China, when you take out, you know, estimates are at least a third of Chinese production, when you take out that much production from the biggest producer and consumer in the world, obviously you have upward pressure on global pork prices. So that's a positive thing for our guys. Um, you know, the uncertainty is to what extent do we get to ship pork to China, or, as you say, are we backfilling more? And if that's the case, then you're going to be... Over time here, you're going to start to stimulate production in places like Europe and Brazil and so on, where, you know, you, you would normally be stimulating that production in the U.S. So then we're stuck, you know, competing against this, this production for the long term. So it's, it's a difficult situation for, you know, for us. We've been pushing the administration to get this know it's tough for our producers, um, but, I, you know, I just, we, we don't know. It's, it's no small matter here realigning economic and political relationship between the U.S. and China. A lot on the line for sure. Nick, thank you for the update. We appreciate it. You're welcome. Take care. Nick Giordano, Vice President and Counsel Global Government Affairs for the National Pork Producers Council. All right, coming up next, we're going to look at rural health care issues. Stay with us here on AOA. Hi, this is Mike Adams. You're listening to AOA, Adams on Agriculture. Don't go away. More Adams on Agriculture coming right up. Take a look under your bed. Find stuff under there? What about jobs? No? Now try your basement. There's a pair of overalls that overall you're not so into anymore. A perfectly good laptop that hasn't sat in your lap in months. And even more stuff, but still no jobs? Well, you really have both. See, stuff is defined as household articles considered as a group. Sometimes this stuff is no longer needed. Wait, no longer needed? That can't be right. Because remember those jobs you were looking for? Those are really needed, and they're the stuff inside your stuff, even inside that winter coat that moved with you to Phoenix. Our job is to unlock those jobs, and it starts when you donate your stuff to your local Goodwill. Here's how we do it. 
When you donate to Goodwill, we sell your stuff to provide job training for people right here in your community. So just by teaming up with Goodwill, you help create jobs. And isn't that worth parting with the leftover guitar from your 80s cover band? Goodwill. Donate stuff, create jobs. Find your nearest donation center at Goodwill.org. A message from Goodwill and the Ad Council. Thousands of people contact InventHelp monthly about their invention or new product. Do you think companies would be interested in your idea? Do you want to try to get a patent? Call InventHelp now. Best of all, the call and information are free. InventHelp keeps your idea confidential, explaining every step of the invention process. We create professional materials and submit them to companies who are looking for new ideas in your category. We have more than 9,000 companies who have agreed to review new ideas in confidence. If a company shows interest in manufacturing, Manufacturing your invention, we can negotiate on your behalf. We have helped over 10,000 clients receive patents. We offer 3D modeling and animation, prototyping services, and we use state-of-the-art technology to present client ideas to additional companies. Join people just like you who made the nothing to lose. The call and the information are free. Call one 800 213 Again, one 800 Five, six. Have you or a loved one used Roundup Weed Killer and been diagnosed with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma? You may be entitled to compensation. Call 800-966-3316. In an August 9, 2019 Bloomberg News story, it was reported that Bayer AG is proposing to pay as much as $8 billion to settle more than 18,000 lawsuits, alleging its Roundup Weed Killer was responsible for the plaintiff's non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. Strict deadlines may apply, so call 800-966-3316. That's 800-966-3316 for a free case review today. Ragweed, you're getting big enough to choke a combine. Bring on that combine, Mare's Tail. There won't be any corn for it to harvest. <laughs> if weeds are laughing at your herbicide, try Acuron. It silences the toughest weeds you'll come up against. Hey, my roots just hit the water table. <laughs> Ooh, that's good. Water hemp, you're so full of fertilizer. Get the last laugh. Talk to your Syngenta reseller about Acuron. Hey, Ragweed. You feeling kind of wilty? Always read and follow label instructions. Acuron is a restricted-use pesticide. Recently, on Adams on Agriculture, EPA continues to... RFS causing a lot of harm to the biofuels industry. We talked yesterday with Bob Deneen with Renewable Fuels Association. Today, joining us is Donnell Rehagen, CEO of the National Biodiesel Board. Donnell, 31 more waivers being granted uh, I mentioned yesterday, this is like kicking an industry when it's down. It's been frustrating. You know, there's been a little bit more clarity provided over the last couple of years, a little bit more transparency, but so much of the application covered by uh, supposedly confidential business information. So, yeah, these things are being done basically in the dark of night, and uh, we find out what the uh, impacts are much, uh, much after they're actually granted. For the information important to rural America, join us on Adams on Agriculture. The Alzheimer's Association and the Ad Council present the story of Cynthia and Ed. My mother was always very active and independent, and she was familiar with her neighborhood. But one day, out of the blue, she stopped at the stop sign for much longer than usual. And uh, she didn't know whether she should go forward or, or turn or just stay at the stop sign. She wasn't even really sure where she was at. She was very concerned. It was very unsettling for her. It's important for you to talk to someone about it, to bring the family in on it. 
I felt so much better after my son told me, Mom, I don't want you to worry or be afraid. I'll be there for you, and we'll figure it out. It could be was the time to talk. Visit alz.org slash ourstories to learn more. A message from the Alzheimer's Association and the Ad Council. You're listening to on agriculture. Hi, this is Mike Adams. You can rely on us for the latest farm and ranch news from around the world. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on agriculture. Now, back to Mike Adams. From hospital closings to lack of doctors, the rural health care crisis uh, Unfortunately, it's getting worse in many places. Here with an update is Maggie Elawani, Government Affairs and Policy Vice President for the National Rural Health Association. Maggie, thanks for joining us again. Thank you so much for inviting me, Mike. I appreciate it. Wanted to get your thoughts on a bill introduced uh, earlier this month in the Senate called the Rural America Health Corps Act, which would create a new $25 million program to bolster National Health Service Corps replacements and provide student loan forgiveness for doctors, dentists, behavioral health specialists, and nurse practitioners for up to five years. As I mentioned, it does have bipartisan support. What does the National Rural Health Association think about this bill? You know, we strongly support it. We're so appreciative to Senator Blackburn of Tennessee for being a lead introducing the legislation. Here's the problem. You know, we've had systemic workforce shortages in rural America since we've had rural health care delivery. It's incredibly challenging. And so much of the difficulty is just recruiting and retaining, but just attracting folks there um, and creating the proper incentives to get them there has, has been such a long-term problem. Now, we've long had a program called the National Health. That's been a program that creates loan forgiveness um, and grants to, to folks who go practice in underserved areas. The problem is there's underserved areas in urban areas, too, and, of course, that's a problem. But the majority of the National Health Service Corps individuals go to those urban areas, 70% um, of them. That's why creating a more focused incentive on rural areas we think is going to be incredibly important, and we're strongly urging this bill to pass Congress before the end of this year. Now, something else that has come up kind of in this presidential campaign, and that's the idea of immigrant doctors uh, helping in rural America, and uh, some things that uh, some are suggesting, uh, liberalizing immigration rules to make it easier for foreign-born doctors to work in rural areas. And uh, some, of, uh, some are saying this is the way to address thoughts on that. Well, we're looking and examining all possibilities in improving shortages because, as you know, we just said they're they're just very tough. There's currently a program called the program, which does um, focus on on allowing um, foreign uh, medical physicians in rural underserved areas. It's been fairly successful um, in, in, in many states. There's a, there's a strict allotment on how many states can use. The long-term solution, though, Mike, is really trying to figure out how to grow your own. 
what we really see is when we try to pull individuals um, from from different areas and put them in Sometimes it doesn't always work. What we find the best solution is really to take folks who are from those rural communities who want to serve the people in their community. A lot of the opportunities. So the J-1 visa program, the Conrad 30s, has been an important component, but we think that's not the overall solution to really. Well, now you're in a situation, and we're in a situation where Okay, even if you have a young person who wants to be a doctor or nurse, or at least in that local rural area, will there be the opportunities for them to close and things like that? So it's kind of a... No, you're exactly right. In rural America, almost always the doctor is, is hospital-based. The doctors leave, and it's very hard to just for an individual physician to hang up their shingle and be able to make a practice career. And, boy, just since we've, we've last spoken to each other, eight more rural hospitals, um, five just in the last two weeks, it's getting to be absolutely catastrophic. Um, it's devastating to the, to the people of that community. It's devastating to the economy of that local community. As we said, um, we think that we're seeing some progress, however, on Capitol Hill, um, and we've seen some progress with the administration. I think last time we spoke, we talked about moves by the administration to change the way rural hospitals, a lot of rural hospitals, are paid and to pay them um, for the rural communities that they are serving. Um, it's called the wage index adjustment. And we think that this is going to rural hospitals somewhat. It's not going to solve that closing problem entirely, but we think it's going to be helpful. However, what we really need is Congress to move. Um, Senator Grassley, um, chairman of the Senate Finance Committee from the state of Iowa, certainly understands the needs of rural America, now that he wants to get a rural health care bill done before the end of this year. Hopefully, we can get the um, rest of his committee and the rest of the United States Senate feeling the same way. Um, we're making our rounds around Capitol Hill, urging the need for this, talking about the urgency of this closure issue. We've got 46% of rural hospitals operating at a financial loss. We can't wait um, months, years, however long it takes Congress to sometimes move We've got to act now because we've got too many rural communities at stake. No, we'll watch and see if they can get something done then when they get back in session yet this year. Maggie, as always, thank you for the update. Thank you so much, Mike. Take care. You too. Maggie Elawani, Government Affairs and Policy Vice President for the National Rural Health Association. Well, that's going to wrap it up for today. Thank you, as always, for joining us. and. Uh, and letting us be part of your day. And remember, next week we'll be broadcasting from the Farm Progress Show in Decatur, Illinois, broadcasting Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday next week. Hope to see a lot of you at that show. And uh, on Tuesday we'll be 
broadcasting from the Rabo tent. Wednesday, we'll be broadcasting from the Syngenta tent. We'll talk more about it. Stay with us on AOA. Hi, this is Mike Adams. Thanks for listening to Adams on Agriculture. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world.